life can be messy. Even for Christian believers, life can be messy. Despite all the blessings that we have in Christ, regardless of the work of grace that God has done within us, we remain far from perfect and riddled with inconsistencies. We must never try to excuse such shortcomings, of course, and we must never allow ourselves to simply become resigned to the view that, well, this is me, this is as good as it's ever going to get, and so let's just trudge on till we get to heaven. No, we must be giving ourselves continually to repentance and to renewed obedience and the pursuit of godliness, and as Paul says, pressing on for the prize of the upward call, throwing off our sins and anything else which hinders us as we run the race set before us. Run the race with our eyes fixed on Christ, maturing in his knowledge and love and grace. But life can still be messy and fraught with struggles and disappointments for all of that. The next two major judges in the book of Judges really bring home to us that these familiar characters in these well-known Bible stories, they were not some level above the rest of us spiritually. They are anything but superheroes. And I hope that one of the lessons that you can see as we make our way through these chapters is that again and again, God chooses to use such ordinary people who've come from such messy backgrounds. They have messy lives. They, they make mistakes. They sometimes make very poor choices. And knowing all that, it is still they whom God chooses to use, just like he uses me and you. This section of Judges we're looking at this morning is the continuation of what we looked at last week. Following 45 years of peace and at least some degree of spiritual stability, Israel plunged ever deeper into idolatry, deeper than they'd ever been previously, and for the next 18 years, God is going to use the Philistines and the people of Ammon on the east side of the Jordan River to oppress Israel. And God abandoned them to the many false gods that they had chosen to worship instead of him. He has not forsaken them, but for a time he abandons them to the gods they've chosen. You worship them, you serve them, God says. Well, good, let them be the ones to whom you turn for help and for aid. And of course, such gods are useless, for they are no gods at all. And eventually Israel begin to cry out to God once more. Eventually, they abandon their idolatry. And as we saw last week, it is because God is a God of unfailing mercy and grace and compassion. It's because of who he is that he is moved by the misery that the people of Israel are enduring. We see that in verse 16 of chapter 10. 
And God is going to strengthen another man to lead Israel, to bring them out of their oppression. And there unfolds in chapter 11 and through into the first part of chapter 12, a most remarkable story. We'll look at it in three parts, and this is the first. Uh, we're in chapter 10 at verse 17, going through to the first part in chapter 11. And what we see here is pride swallowed and Jephthah appointed. Most of the 12 tribes of Israel have settled in Canaan on the west side of the Jordan River, in between the river and the Mediterranean Sea. But there are some who live on the eastern side of the river. You have the tribes of Gad and Reuben and approximately half of the tribe of Manasseh. So the Jordan River runs from the north to the south, emptying out of the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea at the bottom. Down in the south, alongside the Dead Sea, uh, you have the tribe of Reuben. Up in the north, just under the tip of the Sea of Galilee, is half of the tribe of Manasseh on the east side of the river. And in between Manasseh and Reuben, you have Gad in the centre. Most of that entire region to the east of the Jordan was known geographically as Gilead. So that's the area that's being referred to in this passage. And it's primarily affecting the tribes of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben on that east side of the River Jordan. The land of Moab is right down in the south underneath Reuben and Ammon is to the east in the middle, kind of on the border of Gad. So that's where all of this action is taking place. And with the people of Ammon gathering against them, all of the people of Israel in that region of Gilead at the end of chapter 10, those people realise that they need someone to lead them against the threat of the Ammonites. And they know who they believe that man should be. But in the text, we haven't yet been introduced to him. And so at the start of chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 4 fill us in with some of the backstory. The people of Gilead know that the man they want to approach is Jephthah. But who is he? And why is he going to be such a remarkable choice? Well, from verse 1, we get some of the background. We're told why it is that their thoughts immediately go to him. He has a reputation as being a mighty man of valour. Now, that's actually very interesting, isn't it? That is how God described Gideon, even though he wasn't. But... These men, in making the choice that they're making, they are going for someone who, by human evaluation, obviously is a man of valour. 
So when God chooses Gideon, he calls him something that he isn't actually, a mighty man of valour. But the people of Gilead look for someone who in their estimation is a mighty man of valour, actually, Jephthah. Now that doesn't stop God from using Jephthah, but it's an interesting contrast to note. We have a tendency to want to rely upon the, the attributes of the man or woman rather than relying upon the attributes of God who is going to work in and through that man. They're two very different things. The attributes of the actual man or the attributes of God who is going to work through that man. We need to be very careful that we don't confuse those two things. Now that doesn't mean that God never uses men or women who have obvious aptitudes and abilities. Just be clear that even the most gifted servant of Christ can do nothing for Christ merely on the basis of natural abilities with which God may have blessed them. If God is not at work, then we have nothing. Well, back to Jephthah. And the people of Gilead are forced to eat humble pie in approaching him. Jephthah's father slept with a prostitute. And Jephthah was the result of that union. Now, when his half-brothers were old enough to understand the implications of all of this, they decided that there is no way that their half-brother, Jephthah, is getting his hands on any of the family inheritance, so they kick him out. And Jephthah headed north to the region of Tob, and we read that he falls in there with a gang of thugs, or rather, they fall in with him and he earns a fearsome reputation. And now in their time of need, as Ammon are going to war against the people of Gilead, the leaders in Gilead are thinking of Jephthah. He is exactly the kind of man we need right now. A kind of cometh the hour, cometh the man type of situation, even if that man happens to be Jephthah. And they clearly swallow their pride and realise that they need him. And unsurprisingly, Jephthah is rather put out in verse 7. Wouldn't you be? Oh, so now you're in trouble, you want me back. But in verses 9 to 11, we discover that actually there's a bit more to Jephthah than we might have expected. To the invitation to become the leader in Gilead, he is understandably suspicious at first. Really? Me? The head of Gilead? You can imagine what he's thinking, can't you? Only for as long as you need me to defeat the Ammonites, and then you'll turn on me and turf me out again. 
But at the same time, don't miss something very important that Jephthah says in verse 9. He says there, and the Lord delivers them to me. You think, hang on a minute, where's that come from? There's more to this man than at first appears. Jephthah clearly isn't relying upon his reputation, even if the people in Gilead seem to be. And then we read in verse 11, he spoke all his words before the Lord. Now, we don't know everything that's gone on in this man's life. We know what happened on that one occasion when he was kicked out of his family home. But he gives this clear acknowledgement that if he leads the people to victory over the Ammonites, he understands that it will be God's doing. And actually, in that famous recounting of Old Testament men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Jephthah is named there. And we know it's this Jephthah and not another Jephthah because the writer in Hebrews 11 takes us through the history of Israel in chronological order. And in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, this is what we read. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Clearly a reference to these judges in the book of Judges. And it doesn't worry us that Samson and Jephthah are not named in the correct order because neither are David and Samuel. And we've no doubts as to which David and Samuel it is that are being referred to there. And so it kind of fills us as Christian people uh, with real hope and encouragement. Jephthah's life has been a real mess. From a Jewish perspective, he really had the worst possible start in life. He's known complete rejection from his own family. He's earned a reputation as a fearless outlaw in order to survive. But God's going to use him. And centuries later, God would have him held up as an example of faith. And, and we see a theme here as well. It's a theme of one rejected by their own who would actually go on to become their saviour. Now, I believe it's too far probably to to suggest that he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament, but we do see this theme of one who has been rejected being used by God amongst his own people. We see it in the story of Joseph, rejected by his brothers, but used to save them. Of course, Christ would be rejected by his own people but it will be Christ who will save them. God can take hold of rejected people, broken people, outcast people, all kinds of people, and use them for his purposes and glory. 
in Jephthah, there must have been some degree of humility and meekness, I think, for him not to have simply stormed off in the biggest fit of rage or just to have punched every single one of them for having the sheer audacity and cheek of coming to ask him, of all people, for help. His has been a messy life. He is, in many ways, a very ordinary man. But for all that, here's the thing. His trust is in the Lord. And that's going to make all the difference. And because of that, the Lord is going to use him. Are you trusting in the Lord like this? That he might use you? And then secondly in Jephthah, we see a surprising wisdom. And we see this in the middle section of chapter 11, from verse 12 through to verse 28. Given what's said about Jephthah in the opening portion of chapter 11, you might suppose him to be, well, bitter, perhaps ignorant, a bit vengeful, perhaps quite a thuggish man, given the betrayal that he'd known in his past. But it seems that there's there's far more depth to him than that. And, and actually, he's quite astute. He's surprisingly knowledgeable about Israel's history. He begins not by rounding up an army and heading straight for Ammon's jugular, but by sending an envoy to talk to the king of Ammon, to try and find out just what his grudge is. Let's try to negotiate, verse 12. Perhaps there's no need for bloodshed. A bit more to this mighty man of valour, perhaps, than we might at first have assumed. And then we get Ammon's answer. You took these lands off us when you first came up out of Egypt. They're going back 300 years. That's what we learn in verse 26. We just want our land back, they say. And so, well, hand it back to us peaceably. There's no need for any fighting. And to our astonishment, Jephthah is able to provide a detailed rebuttal of their claim in verses 15 through to verse 27. Hang on, says Jephthah to the king of Ammon. Us take your land off you. That's not what happened at all. And Jephthah explains how it was when Joshua led Israel into the promised land. They went around the lands of Moab and Ammon because having asked if they could simply pass through the land on their way into Canaan, across the River Jordan, they were denied access. No, you can't come. They didn't trust them. No, you can't step one foot into our land. 
So Joshua led them further north, probably running roughly parallel to the River Jordan, up to the land of the Amorites, to see if they would permit them to walk across their land as they head westwards to walk over the River Jordan and into the land of Canaan. Well, when they asked King Sihon of the Amorites, verse 19, he responded by attacking Israel, verse 20. But God gave Israel the victory over the Amorites, and on account of that, Israel took possession of their land. It's the Amorites' land we possessed, says Jephthah, not the land of Ammon. You've got your facts wrong. And if your god, Chemosh, gave you a land to possess, would you not take possession of it? Verse 24. It's a rhetorical question, of course. You would. And so did we, when the God of Israel gave us the land of the Amorites. They came to war against us. God gave us the victory over them and gave us their land but not your land. We've been in this situation for the last 300 years, verse 26. Why wait till now to ask for it back? If you had such a good case, why did you not try to take the land back long ago? And what's more, King Balak of Moab never had a problem with any of this 300 years ago, verse 25. So why have you suddenly decided that it's an issue now? And in verse 27, Jephthah states that he has a good conscience in this matter. His conscience is clear. I have not sinned against you. It's you who've sinned against me. And the Lord will be the judge in all of this. And as we just pause there, I just want you to think about this. Can you see the simple yet enormously helpful example that is set for you here by Jephthah? In the face of opposition, there's no knee-jerk reaction. There's no losing his temper. Let's talk this through. What's your gripe? What's the issue? Let's talk. And then in the face of false accusation, again, there's no knee-jerk reaction. There's no losing his temper. He simply presents the truth. He, he counteracts false accusation with the truth. And it's a truth which can be confirmed by means of the word of God. And that's an important aspect of it. He knows what the truth is. And so he plainly states it. Based upon that truth, his conscience is clear. And he trusts in God. And he trusts in God sufficiently to leave the outcome with God. I think that's a really helpful example. I actually think there are echoes there of how we see the Apostle Paul respond to such things in his life. 
when he was confronted with opposition, with false accusation, even leading to his imprisonment. Paul acted in a very similar way. Let me simply state my case. Let me present you with the truth of the matter. And then he just left it in the hands of the Lord. Well, Jephthah does the same thing here. I think he's a, a great example for us to know about and to follow. I think we're starting to see why his name appearing in Hebrews chapter 11 is justified. He's such an ordinary man whose life has been such a mess. He appears to be of very poor pedigree that would make us question his character, make us wonder about his aptitude for the job when we first meet him. All, all brawn and no brains, we might be tempted to say of Jephthah. But God has the measure of him. And he's just the kind of man that God glories in using to bring glory to himself. And surely verse 29 convinces us that the Lord has been with Jephthah. And that's what accounts for the way that Jephthah has been able to acquit himself so far. Knowing that the Lord is with you. Doesn't that change everything? And faced with Ammon's refusal to back down, Jephthah puts his trust in the Lord into action. And the Lord, we read, delivered Ammon into his hands. Verse 32. Unlike Gideon, Jephthah was naturally and actually a mighty man of valour. But it wasn't Jephthah's mighty valour that secured the victory. It was God. It was all of God for Jephthah, every bit as much as it had been for Gideon. And so it will be for you and I. All the Lord's doing in our lives as we look to him and place our trust in him day by day. God can be trusted. He won't forsake you. He won't let you down. And then we move on to the, the third and final part of the story from verse 29 of chapter 11. And we're going to take it as far as verse 7 of chapter 12 this morning. We have a careless vow and we have tragic pride. This is the part of the story for which Jephthah is most famous, infamous, notorious. I don't think anyone's quite sure which. Uh, and we see there this vow that he makes that if the Lord would give him victory, then the first thing that he sees when he gets home, he will offer as a, a thank offering in the form of a a burnt sacrifice. And having secured him the victory, Jephthah goes home. And in typical manner in those days, 
in thanksgiving for the victory that he'd been given out of his home with singing and dancing comes his only child, a daughter. There are, there are two dominant schools of thought on what it was that Jephthah actually did with his daughter. And to demonstrate how hard it can be to work through all of this, the two main commentaries that I've been using to help me in my study for this series are written by two men. And one of those authors stands on one side of the debate and the other author stands on the other side of the debate. It's that, it's that way with this particular theme. One author follows one school of thought and the second man follows the other. Well, what are these two schools of thought as to what it was that Jephthah actually did to his daughter? The first school of thought, um, well, it kind of reads the story as it appears to read. But Jephthah's reaction in verse 35 and the, and the time, the two months that he gives his daughter to be able to mourn the fact that she's never going to marry, that she's never going to have a family, that, that this, these things are indeed an indication that Jephthah actually did sacrifice his daughter to the Lord, as unbelievable as that may sound, after all the things that we've already said about him. Of course, we bear in mind that as we've already seen in this series, child sacrifice was something that was known amongst the pagan nations. But for someone like Jephthah, with the knowledge of God that he clearly had, for him to have even made that vow in the first place, but then to go through with it, is that really what happened? Others suggest that what he actually did was commit his daughter to a celibate, lifelong service to God, possibly in the tabernacle. Not dissimilar to what Hannah would do sometime later with young Samuel. And that he consecrated her to the Lord by means of a sacrifice. Well, as you look at these two things, well, there, there are holes in that argument which make it difficult to reconcile. And then at the same time, of course, we struggle so much to, to comprehend how a man like Jephthah, knowing what he does, could even contemplate making such a careless vow. What do I think? <laughs> well, I knew you'd want to ask. Well, for myself, I, I am more persuaded by the view that he did actually sacrifice his daughter. I'm, I'd like it to be this, but I really think it might be that. It's one of those situations, isn't it? It's not an aspect of God's word that I'm prepared to die over. And if it was intended to be a portion of God's word, if it was intended to be an item of truth that we should be prepared to die for, 
I think God would have made it clearer in his word, like he does with the gospel, which every Christian man or woman ought to be prepared to die for. Are you? What we can certainly learn is this. Don't make careless vows that God doesn't ask for or require. Don't bargain with God. If you do this, I'll do that. That, that can really lead you down a very careless, perilous path. That's not how Christians are to think or pray. Uh, that's, that's not how to discern God's will. God has revealed in the Bible his word, his will, his promises, his purposes, his precepts, his warnings, his commandments his do's and his don'ts, his you must and you must not, his you ought to and you ought not, his this is good, this is not so good, this is the best and this is out of bounds. All of those things we find in God's word. Read them, heed them, trust them, Follow them, claim them, obey them, be guided and shaped and transformed by them. Do so prayerfully and with the helpers, help the Holy Spirit. You do that, there's no need for such reckless vows as the one that Jephthah made. There's no need with this kind of bargaining with God. You'll be very relieved to know. And in this final little section of the story, we must also be careful not to be filled with tragic pride like the people of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was a very pivotal tribe in the nation of Israel. But just as they get, did with Gideon, they, they moan that they haven't been granted the dominant role that they think they deserve. You never invited us to join you, chapter 12, verse 1. Yes, I did, but you never came, verse 2, replies Jephthah. We're going to burn down your house, you good-for-nothing fugitives says Ephraim, verse 1. Enough, Ephraim, enough. And Ephraim's threats are silenced by Jephthah and his men. The, the tribe of Ephraim live on the west side of the Jordan and they've crossed over the river eastwards into Gilead in order to confront Jephthah. And now they're being defeated. And the Ephraimites who are still alive try to run back home. 
back across the Jordan. But Jephthah takes control of all the fords, all the crossing places on the Jordan River, safe places where the river can be crossed. And he sets up a very simple and famous way of identifying the, all the men of Ephraim. Imagine you're driving through to North Wales along the A55, once you get the far side of uh, Queen's Ferry there. And there's a, there's a barrier across the road on the Welsh border. And to be able to get in, uh, they challenge you to be able to say, Llanfair, Puth, Gwingle, Go, Gerry, Quinn, Drobble, Llanticilio, Go, Go, Goch, except to say it properly and in the Welsh accent. Like someone from Anglesey who really knows what they're talking about and how to talk the talk. Are you an Ephraimite? Say the men of Gilead. No. Prove it. Say Shibboleth. Uh, Sibboleth. Because they can't quite get the shh right. And they're dead in the water. Something as simple as a regional dialect has let them down. It was probably like, like asking the English to pronounce that really elusive double L sound in the Welsh language that we can never get right. Clan something, as all the Welsh people shudder at our attempts. That's what they used. And all of those Ephraimites were, were dealt with on that day. It's an extraordinary portion of God's word. We, we see God using this ordinary man. He uses people with messy lives. That fills us with hope. Not that we should intentionally seek to live messy lives, but so often our lives are just messy. No matter how hard we try to avoid it, So often, too, division amongst God's people comes from within, caused by those who on occasions feel that they must be allowed to dominate, to influence, to control, like the people of Ephraim. This tragic pride that lingers in their hearts, fueled by an inflative sense of their own importance and of their own abilities. We see in this story that, that God has raised up a saviour for Israel once again in the form of another judge, Jephthah. But it's all still so messy, isn't it? And it won't be long before they'll need saving all over again. Just cast your eyes down to the opening verse of chapter 13. Yeah, here we go again. Will there ever be a perfect salvation? Will there ever be a perfect saviour? Yes. Yes. 
His name is Jesus. He came into the world to do the once for all cleaning up job that this world so desperately needs, that you and I so desperately need. He came to heal the brokenhearted, to give recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those held captive in their sins. He came to save for himself his very own people. And he did it. And he's doing it. And he'll complete it. He is holy and righteous. He is full of grace and truth. And those he saves, he saves for all eternity in perfect hope, in perfect rest and perfect peace. Has he saved you?